Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Compose Conference is coming up on Thursday, February 4th and Friday, February 5th in New York City. Compose is a conference for type functional programmers focused specifically on Haskell, OCaml, F-Sharp, SML, and related technologies. To find out more and to register, visit www.composeconference.org. On February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register. And to make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4-D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profits conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with Closure. Visit www.closured.de to find out more. Elixir Days will be taking place March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze.com, to find out more. Erlang Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now, and visit www erlingfactorycom slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. Visit lambdaconf.us to keep an eye out for updates. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. The call for proposals is now open and will be taking submissions through the 13th of March. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available Visit eventil, that's E-V-E-N-T-I-L dot com slash events slash polyconf dash 16 to submit your talk proposal. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Brujo Benevides. Brujo, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? All right. Thanks, Stephen, for having me here. I've been a programmer since I was a, a little kid in elementary school. A bunch of hippies with a traffic ban came to my school when I was really young, like 10 years old, and they brought the computers every week. Those were like Commodore 64, if I remember correctly. We started with a basic for Commodore there. It was from that point on, computers were my life up to this point. I started working 15 years ago with a Visual Basic in a software company for banking stuff. And after a couple of years, I basically was very tired of that. So my life with .NET, which was the last language I learned during that time, was very not satisfactory. And so I, I left the company. I booked a, took a to Peru. And I don't know if you know, but Peru is on the other side of Latin America, of South America, than Buenos Aires, where I live. And so I came back from Peru at a very, very slow pace. When I came here, I found 
I've been working, have been working on Haskell for my thesis in my university. And I found a company that offered a job, a programming job in another functional language called Erlang. And I said, well, why not? So it, it should be different than .NET. And so when I get there, I found that this language and I fell in love almost immediately. And I've been doing Erlang since, since then. That, that was like eight years ago. And I moved from that company, or, or, or that company closed. And I moved from that one to Inaka when Chad, Inaka's founder, was actually creating the company in Buenos Aires. That was five years ago. I started as the only Erlang programmer there, and I'm now the CTO of Inaka. We are part of Erlang Solutions, and we have around 30 people, which are developers in different technologies, like Android, iOS, Ruby developers. We have AngularJS developers, and we have a group of around uh, seven or eight Erlang developers. And we basically have almost every Erlang developer in Buenos Aires, except Fede Carrone, Unbalanced Parenthesis, and uh, Chelo Gornstein. Both of them already have been at Inaka, and they both have their own companies now. And that was one of the reasons it was interesting was I knew you through Inaka, and I had seen Inaka's stuff. And so I wanted to get you on because of Anaka and all the stuff that you managed to do at Erlang and how you introduced that and just seeing how Erlang is being used in a different part of the world and how the acceptance and use in business has been taking off. So you said you started getting in through Haskell as part of your school studies. What did you find coming into there? And then when you made that transition to Erlang because you were like, okay, it's another functional language. What did that journey look like of coming from a visual basic and .NET background and making that jump into functional programming? What was your story like there with the experience of discovering that way of thinking versus the way you'd been used to with visual basic and .NET? Well, I started working with visual basic and .NET way before I really knew how to program. I knew how to write code but I wasn't a real programmer back then. So I, I learned a lot in university. And so after years of working that way, I found that there were other alternatives. Like object-oriented is a, is a great paradigm. It has many advantages, but you have to do it in the proper way. Like I think it was Alan Kay who created that and gave the whole concept of that. But... If you find the object-oriented programming languages that we have now, like .NET or Java, they don't really follow that paradigm much well. And so it was after I learned how things can be done or should be done, I keep programming in, in the way that those languages forced me to was not what I wanted. On the other hand, Haskell is a very pure functional language. And what the concepts behind it are the concepts of functional languages. If you learn how to do functional programming, Haskell will not surprise you at all. On the other hand, Haskell is a language that imposes a lot, or at least to me, it's a language that imposes a lot of challenges or requirements in your brain. It's something that to actually be able to code in Haskell, I need 
real focus and concentration and I need to keep all the context in my head. And if I switch to something else and go back to my goal, I need another time to re-enter that thinking bubble. With Erlang, it's much simpler. I'm not sure exactly why, what the reason is behind it, but to me, Erlang, Erlang was like a simpler Haskell. And it came with other benefits like concurrency and fault tolerance and whatnot. So when I found it, it was uh, relieving. It was so simple to me that I was like, well, I can do this for a living and don't sweat, right? That's interesting because I hear a lot of people, when they first get exposed to Erlang, if they can get past the syntax, they think, hey, this is really beautiful and really elegant. And yeah, the concurrency story and the processes are neat. But it's not necessarily simple and straightforward or easy for a lot of people to get the mindset of how you start to think in the processes and how you start to split everything up and take advantage of all of that instead of just writing everything essentially in one process and not taking advantage of it. So do you remember how that managed to click for you? And Yeah, the thing is, the first company I worked for in Erlang was a voice over IP company, so telephony. And so the problems there were the problems that Erlang was built to solve. So basically, I was using Erlang exactly for what Erlang was created for. So everything seemed to fit. It was not too hard to understand what the goals of the different features that the language provided were, right? So I had communications, I had channels, I have users or whatnot. I had to connect them, etc. And those were the things that Erlang was built for, so everything fit in that scenario. After that, in the current company, like Dinaka, we use Erlang mostly for web servers, which are similar, but not exactly. So if your first application that you build in Erlang is a web server or is something that it's not exactly telephony as I, as I build, it might be more complicated because you are used to build those kind of applications in a different way. And so it takes a time to actually get all the advantages of using a concurrent language that when you find it's amazing, but it may take a while. But if you start with the exact problem that Erlang was built for, it's easier. That's one of those things because I came in when I started picking up Erlang was we had some problems, but it wasn't necessarily fit ahead of time without understanding how Erlang works. So I could see where you're going in with a company that already had it up using telephony and you've got this shining example between the existing code base and the problem domain it's mapping onto where it says, yeah, here's a great example of how you can take advantage of the processes at even the smallest level and use processes to your heart's content without having to make that mindset of saying, okay, well, now how does it fit into this domain? So that sounds like it was a really fortunate ability for getting in and actually learning Erlang that way instead of getting the stumbling block of saying, well, Erlang's concurrent. It solves my problems. Now I got to go reverse engineer my problem into Erlang. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. Yes. So you were working there and you were doing Erlang and you managed to get that example. And then you went and started with Anaka and were a sole Erlang developer and doing more web-based stuff. When you got to Anaka as the one Erlang developer, what was that like? Was that they knew they were going in and doing Erlang and kind of had some Erlang stuff and wanted you in? Or 
What was the evolution of you going in as the sole Erling person and now building up over the course of the years a team of more people that know Erling? Well, Chad, Inaka's founder, was also the owner of Erlang Inside. And by that time, a very popular, very popular in Erlang terms, Erlang blog. And so he was an Erlang developer as well. And he also came from .NET. He was part of the Visual Studio team in Microsoft. So we have a similar background, just that he was like a, a little bit more advanced than me. A little bit now. He was really much more advanced than, than myself. And so my first uh, project there, which was the only project in the company at that time, was a TCP. It was like a server, but it was not an HTTP server. It was a, the communication went through TCP, straight TCP. It was a server for the second screen application for TV shows. And basically, there was already a code base written by Chad. And we had that internal joke that my job was to rewrite everything in a better way or whatnot. And so after the after a couple of months in, at Inaka, we were constantly comparing the we're doing Git blame and comparing how many lines I have and how many of the original chat lines were in there as well. And until I have more than the ninety percent of the code was already mine. And it was all so so it's not building something new, it was all rewriting parts of the original prototype. And that was good as well. I was very lucky, again, because I didn't have to start from the ground up. I had, I had something that was working, just not in the best possible way. And so I had tests, or even, even if I didn't have unit tests, I had something to test with. So whenever I, I developed something different, I compared that new development with the previous version to see if both still provide the same functionality and so on and so far. So my first project, Dinaga, was also an easy one, if you know what I mean. It was not a whole new thing. It was something that was already there. I was improving it. But the idea was that whatever I built there, if I could, I put it in a different, in a separate library, in a separate application or whatnot, so that we can reuse that for future projects. Because we knew that we were not going to be a one project company, right? So that was our first project. We knew that we were going to work in very long list of other projects from the very beginning. And so we started extracting common parts and basically creating libraries and applications that we can use in different bigger applications. And so after the success of that application, the second screen app, we get a lot of other customers. We get mobile messaging platforms to work with. Also with an existing code base that we had to move. It was a Jeopardy server that they were slowly replacing by a RESTful API. And that was my first approach to RESTful APIs. Again, I have something to compare with. So whenever I developed something, I already had a way to see if that was functionally correct or not, which is invaluable. That's something that, that is really cool to have and not always happens. And so, again, I get a chance to 
focus specifically on how to build RESTful APIs. And I didn't have to actually develop the whole thing and design the whole thing myself, which came later. Then when, when Whisper hired us to build their platform, I already had experience in messaging, RESTful APIs and whatnot. And by that time we used, I think, MockyWeb and CouchDB as a database. And we started with that for Whisper. And slowly we improved or we changed different components and we improved that. And so we keep growing our library of database and web related stuff that we put as open source projects. So we use them again in different new projects that came later. We switched from MockyWeb to Cowboy. We switched from CouchDB to MySQL, Postgres, React, Nisha, whatever, until with Cello came into to the company. And we always, when, when we have a new hire, a new Erlang developer in the company, we take that time, the, the, their first whatever they need, like maybe a couple of months, maybe just one or two weeks for them to develop an open source project so they don't have uh, the pressure of having a client pushing for deadlines or milestones or whatever. We want people to start like enjoying what they are doing slowly until they get in the client project. So that way, when Chelo came in, we told him, Chad and I told him about our idea of creating a library that allows us to easily switch our database backends. We described our idea. Chelo basically said, that's a very good idea. I don't like that. And that was a Friday. Next Monday, he came in and gave us a sales pitch of his own idea with a whole lot of code already written. He spent the whole weekend writing a persistence layer library with his idea in mind. And it's what became SumoDB. That's a thing you can find on, on GitHub now, one of our best open source libraries. And so from that point on, every project that we build connecting to a database is something that we don't think about anymore. We just put SumoDB in and we're done with it. The same goes with building a REST server. Cowboy is amazing. Luik is a great developer and he created the library, which is impressive. And we build everything on top of it. Again, as we build RESTful servers one after the other, we found common pieces. We put those in open source libraries. And so we tend to write just the specific code for every client application that we create. And we have all those repeated stuff in different open source projects. That was our philosophy from the time Chad was here. So, so basically, that's that's the process we follow. We do we do new stuff, we repeat that new stuff, we turn that into a library, we do another different new stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it sounds like you didn't really have to do too much hard selling to get people to want to use Erling and accept Erling when they're coming to you to work on these problems. It sounds like they kind of come to you because you already have the Erlang experience and they're like, I think Erlang's a fit here and we want you all? Yes. We always have the alternative. We have Ruby developers and we even have a Node.js developer. So we always have alternatives if they, for some reason, don't want Erlang. But we usually 
the people that approach us that when they came to us, they usually want Erlang because they know about I don't know Whisper, Success, or Tiger Text, or whatever Choosy or the other applications that we built. So if they came to us because they know something that we built, they usually know that we built that stuff in Erlang. So they are already willing to work with Erlang. That's fine for us. But if if we approach them, if we are trying to sell something or, or work, we always have the alternative. If you don't trust us to build your product in Erlang, that's fine. We can do it in Ruby. We can do it in Node.js if you want. We don't recommend it, but whatever. So we have alternatives, but yeah. And now that we are part of Erlang Solutions, it's much, much easier. Like Erlang Solutions, it's Erlang Solutions, right? You don't sell Ruby there, so it's easy. If they came to us, it's because we work in Erlang and we are experts in that. And that was kind of one of the questions. The follow-on was, they're coming to you because they want Erlang. Have they found that once they get you to do that project for them, are you kind of in a maintenance mode with them or are they able to take it back? And is there kind of extra training for when you say things like whisper that they come back and they say, not only are you writing it, but you're also helping to build a larger Erlang sub-community in the company that says, when we hand this off to you, we're now ramping up your developers so they understand, but we're here for the more advanced stuff. What was that kind of adoption looking like when people are coming for Erlang and being able to build up that stuff? If you said you have pretty much every Erlang developer in Buenos Aires, what does it look like when they're taking that back and taking ownership of their projects? Well, first off, our clients are all in the United States, maybe in Europe, but not in South America. So even when we have all the, Erlang de- all the possible Erlang developers in Buenos Aires, they don't care. They will not hire people from Buenos Aires. They will hire people in whatever, San Francisco, Los Angeles, whatever they are. But the thing is, it depends on the client. Sometimes the clients are happy for us to take care of the coding and the later versions and whatnot. But sometimes they want us to train their people in Erlang. And that happens. Whisper started that, that way. They First, we were the only developers there. But then we help them build their own team. And even Chad himself is now working for them. So it's like they grew their own team of Erlang developers and they have Elixir developers and all that stuff. Some other companies, they don't really care about that. They just have a great idea and a team of, I don't know, support or other stuff. And so they want us as developers and whatever, we develop the initial version, and if they need another version, we develop the next version, etc. We don't do support. We don't do like 24-7. We don't do that. But we do incremental developer development. That's fine for us. And it's not only Erlang. We have Android developers from other companies working with us, learning Android with us, with our experts. I think iOS happened as well one time. So it's not just Erlang, it's a whatever we do. If you are a client of us, we work for you. And if we want us to help you build your own team, you got it. We do it. So you've got these companies coming to you. You're having to bring up their developers into and essentially do the handoff. What does that process look like? How do you find bringing other people who might not be 
familiar with Erlang, up to speed with Erlang and what you've done, and exchanging that knowledge about how you do things the Erlang way for people in other companies that may or may not necessarily be bought in to it themselves, but their company has been. Uh, it's uh, I found a wide variety of experience, very different. There are people that came to us thinking that, yeah, well, Erlang should be just another language. And their minds were blown when we showed them what we developed in a week or two. So we, we spent a week or two working on, some, on a prototype for them and we show them and we teach them what we've been doing those two weeks. And they were like, oh, okay. So it's not just another language. I really have to learn this before I can start managing it myself. And so we offer, especially since we are part of Erlang Solutions, we offer training. So, you know, uh, for instance, Robert Birding, the one of the creators of Erlang, it's part of Erlang Solutions. And he goes to your company and gives you a week of training in Erlang if you want. It's, uh, it's something that Erlang Solutions offers. We have other very skilled trainers. I, I am one of those myself as well. And so we do that. Or some other times we just do a week. If the developers on the client have some experience in Erlang, even if they are not experts, we do like a week of pair programming or whatnot. And then we stay there in case they need something. We answer questions or whatever. Some other cases, like Whisper, they just grew exponentially. And so they hire Erlang developers. We just needed to train them in Whisper, not in actually Erlang programming. So it's different. Every situation is a new one, at least from my perspective. And so probably the last question related to this stuff directly is, you've got these companies coming to you. You've got these companies seeking out Erlang for their problems, or at least being open to Erlang for these problems as a NACA, and now especially as part of Erlang Solutions. From someone who actually does business in Erlang and is part of the consulting stuff, how have you found that community growth and adoption and willingness of picking up these languages? Because Erlang, like a lot of these functional languages, are pretty niche and a completely different way of thinking about things. Have you found over the past five years of working with Erlang and doing this stuff, what have you seen that community growth like being involved so far, both at an individual looking out at the community in general and then the willingness for companies to adopt this quote-unquote fringe technology that is Erlang? And how have you seen that progression go? Uh, for companies, I don't really know. It's been, it's kind of been always the same in these five years from Inaka's perspective. I was never eager to actually get a measure on how companies are seeing uh, or how the vision the companies have of Erlang changes over time. I really not much into it. From a developer's perspective, Erlang community is, I think Iñaki said that last year in Erlang Factory, it's a community that is slowly but steadily growing over time. And again, from a developer perspective, tools that you have as an Erlang developer five years ago 
are very different from what we have today. We have many, many more open source things to work with. We have a very active community in, for instance, it's not so active that it floods your Twitter stream, but it's active enough so that every day there are some new stuff to check out. So from my perspective, it's just the right balance. I do this comparison. I'm in the Erlang room in IRC in Freenode, and I was also in the Elixir room, and I couldn't read the Elixir room. It was too fast for me. If I had to focus on that, I cannot work, right? I, I, I would spend my whole day just checking out what's going on on uh, Elixir's IRC. But on the Erlang room, it's active. You always get some good stuff to share and to talk about. And people are always there. So if I had the other day, it was funny because I, I had I uploaded something to to XPM, and I was like, mm, I am getting a 500 error here. So I went to IRC and I said, Hey, somebody from XPM is around, and basically Eric just gave me the logs of my error. He knows who I am and what my problem was. So we tend to know each other, which is good, but we are a good number of people as well. It's not that we are five or six people. For me, it's a perfect balance, but I get why people would love it to be way bigger, much more spread. But yeah, that will eventually happen with Elixir, probably. That sounds good. And the company part was kind of the perspective of the demand that Anakas has seen specifically because of your early expertise as that. I didn't know if that was starting to like we had one person or two people that would keep us busy for a while that say, hey, you know Erling. And then all of a sudden it's like, now we've become, if you had gotten to the point where because Anaka had the name recognition, if it became something that was like, well, now we're inundated and we're actually having to turn down quite a few people. Uh, yeah, it didn't happen. We're steadily growing in the number of clients as well, but not that much so that we have to step out or don't accept new projects. We still have room for that. Because we also we are also constantly growing our number of Erlang developers, we train people here. So even if we have most Erlang developers in Buenos Aires, we switched from trying to hire Erlang developers a couple of years ago to hiring good developers and training them in Erlang, right? So we are constantly growing our numbers and we are constantly getting new clients. So it's kind of a good balance as well. That sounds like a good rundown of what you've seen from both perspectives and a good overview. And that's a great overview of Anaka and what you've been doing because I've been following off and on just as I catch it and try and get as many of your blog posts on Erlang as I can and see what's going on. And I've been impressed with it. But you also mentioned the tooling has evolved in the past five years of Erlang and what the tooling looks like now in Erlang is different than the tooling of five years ago. And it seems that you've done a lot, A, yourself, and B, with Anaka in general, as you were talking about extracting out some of these common things. But it seems that Anaka's had a huge impact on the tooling environment as well, because just within the past six months, I think, you've got an announced Elvis, and I think you just pushed that up to HexPM. For your style checking, you've got your XREF runner stuff. You've got all these other tools that 
are things that are ancillary to helping you write good Erlang software in addition to all the other libraries and stuff that you were talking about that you've extracted out because it's stuff that you've done over and over again. So can you give a rundown of some of those projects that you've done and that you're personally fond of and kind of just some background on those projects and what they are and just we can talk about some of the different projects and bring them to people's attention if they haven't heard about them? Yeah, sure. So basically, when I became CTO, one of my goals was to keep programming. I told, I think, Chad and Martina, I can totally be a CTO. I can manage people, I can manage projects, I can do whatever, but I have to keep programming. And the answer was somewhere over the lines of, yeah, yeah, of course. You have the whole room to create open source projects. Excellent. So I came up with a couple of them. For instance, we have Ruby developers here, and they have a, an amazing tool called HoundCI. HoundCI is basically something that reviews your pull requests in GitHub and comments on them. If you have a, it's not syntax errors. It's like a, it's like a link that it, it tells you if you are not following the style guide. And so I wanted just that for Erlang. So the next Erlang developer that came in, it was Juan. Juan Facorro, you can find it on Twitter as well. And so basically his first project, the company was that, that one. And since uh, Ruby had Hound, we called our own Elvis because you are nothing but a hound dog. So we created Elvis. And that was a command line project initially so that you can check the style guides. But of course, if you're going to have a tool to check the style guides, you have to have style guides somewhere. And so we have those guides internally, but since we were going to create Elvis as an open source project, we decided to also open source the style guides. And that's when we created the Erlang guidelines repo that's in GitHub as well. We added a couple of rules on how to create new style guides where you have to have a reasoning. It cannot be just because I like it. It has to have a reason behind it. It has to have examples and whatnot. And just by having those guides improved our code quality a lot because on code reviews, the reviewer has something to point out. So it's not like I'm reviewing this code and it smells bad for me, but I can't tell you why. It's, okay, this code is not following that one rule that we have there. So the quality of the code improves and having Elvis to do that automatically improves it even more. But then I realized that Elvis was only checking style in the code. And it was good for most projects, but Erlang comes with an, more other tools to improve your code quality, like Xref and Dialyzer, the compiler itself with the warnings it emits and whatnot. Running those tools is harder than running Elvis because Elvis runs on plain text and those tools, especially the compiler, need the whole project and it needs to compile it or to at least try to compile it. It's not like you can provide the file and you will get the warnings. You have to actually compile the whole thing. That requires, uh, if you are going to analyze a pull request, that requires cloning the repo in the proper branch, running the compiling tools, and some projects use Erlang MK, some others Rebar, some others use a simple makefile, and, and some other projects use emakefile and whatnot. So we created a similar tool to Elvis called Gadget, 
because it has multiple gadgets, like Inspector Gadget. And basically, it's public on the internet. But Elvis works for private repositories as well. You have to subscribe kind of process, but it works. And Gadget doesn't because I don't want any private code in my servers, right? Because I, I don't want to clone everything from a project that I don't own and have the responsibility of doing something with that. So it's just for open source projects, but it works and it's there and you can check uh, your code with multiple tools, with Dialyzer, Xref, Elvis, the compiler, and eventually it will include Tidy and maybe others. And well, all those tools were aimed at the developers that wanted to improve their, the quality of their code bases. And we are using that for every project at our company, of course. That's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that, for instance, we were building web servers. And again, I found that Ruby guys have a very, I, I required documentation, right? And so Ruby developer said, yeah, why not? Just boot up the project and here you have the Swagger page. And I was so amazed by that. that again, I wanted that in my projects, in the Erlang ones. And so it was not a simple thing to get because Ruby projects, the code in Ruby projects is organized in a different way than Cowboy Handlers. So adding a Swagger interface on top of that is simpler. I think because I'm not entirely sure, but I think with Phoenix, it will be, if somebody ever adds a Phoenix Swagger plug, I think it is, Elixir people don't kill me. I think it will be easier than what we had to do on top of Cowboy because of the way that routes are defined in Cowboy. But we did an intermediate step. We created Cowboy Trails which is a tool that you can use to define the roots of your Cowboy server in a pluggable way. Instead of defining all of them in the same way, in the same place, you create routing for your Cowboy server. You define the roots in each handler. So if you have a handler for users, that handler defines its own roots. And so in that way, where you are actually defining the root, you can actually add more metadata to it because that's the module that knows the associated metadata, which is what happens and why it's easier to add a, a Swagger handler in Gradle, which is the library for Ruby, or I think in Phoenix. So in our case, we needed that. We did that in a particular project called Cowboy Trails. And yeah, well, then we added Swagger on top of that. By that time, we were adding... Since we had a metadata software in the middle, Trails, we are able to add more things than Swagger. We can add any metadata we wanted. In particular, we realized that by that time, we had handlers that managed specific entities in our SumoDB persistence layer. So let's say you have a users. You will probably have a handler, a RESTful handler, where you can create a user Another one or, or the same, where you can list all the users and you uh, or, or retrieve just one or delete one or whatever. Those things were very, very much related. You have the handler for users and you have the users model that then eventually is persisted to your database. You have the devices handler or endpoints and you have the devices model. And so if we are using metadata for Swagger, we can use also we can also use metadata for 
models in Sumo to link each handler with the corresponding model in SumoDB. And we did that in one or two projects. And then we realized that it will be much easier to just have a library that does that for you. And so we created Sumo REST. And Sumo REST is basically, it's halfway through being a framework. It is not a framework yet, but it's going there. I have the hope that it will never get there. It will never force you to write code in a particular way, but it's not as uh, simple as if you have a behavior or whatnot. You have to implement some behaviors and you also have to create your handlers in a certain way. But with Sumo REST, you can actually just write the, the metadata for a handler and nothing else. And Sumo REST takes care of everything else. It implements the proper endpoints, it does what it has to do to communicate properly with Cowboy. It gives you the metadata that you need for the Swagger page, and it connects uh, with your models, and they go to the database. It's something that looks like magic. So when we started five years ago in Whisper, for instance, we had to write the whole thing to connect to the database with a different pool of processes to keep the connections open, to reconnect, to do something if they fail or whatnot, queuing up in memory and stuff like that. We also had to model our data that was JSON on the on CouchDB, but it cannot be JSON on inside the Erlang node. And so it was some, some sort of mocky JSON. And we also had to create the... I don't remember exactly how they were implemented, but whatever is equivalent to Cowboy Handlers in MockyWeb for each of those endpoints. And you have to write the documentation manually on some wiki or whatever that gets outdated and whatnot. And now you just write that documentation in a map format in your handler and you have everything. To me, it's a great, great advance. But it also, of course, forces you to use the rest of the libraries, right? Cowboy Swagger, Trails, SumoDB, etc. Which was the first question I got on Twitter when I posted Sumo REST, right? It was, all right, excellent, but can I use it without SumoDB? And the answer is, of course, not. It's everything all together. And finally, the other group of open source projects that we have is bound to XPM. One of the things I missed most about Haskell when I moved to Erlang was Hackage. In Haskell, you create something, you want that to be open source, and you basically cannot do anything else that's not publishing it on Hackage. If it's not published on Hackage, it doesn't exist. That's the thing. And to me, that's great, because that's the way... It's the same with uh, RubyGems or NPM or whatever, which is basically saying that if I need something and it's not in Hackage, I have to develop myself, period. It's not that that I will spend months developing just to find out that it was not on GitHub, it was on Bitbucket. And say, oh my God. Or the name was not exactly what I expected to be. And so, for instance, we created uh, years ago, one of our first open source projects was a library to connect to APNS to send push notifications for for, uh, Apple devices. And basically, years later, we found out, if you go now to GitHub and check it out, you will find something like 20 different Erlang libraries for connecting to to Apple 
all of them very similar and all of them very different in different ways. I really don't like that as a user. If I'm going to use an if I need an APNS library, why do I have to research among all those things? It has to be one over there or two, maybe. The thing is, they were hard to find at that time. I really think that XPM will help in that front. It will be a proper uh, collection of packages where you can actually find what you're looking for. But on the other hand, we work with uh, Luik stuff. So we have Cowboy, we have use Cowboy with GAN. So they come with ErlangMK and we really like that project as well. And it's not that I like it better than Rebar. Rebar is an excellent thing as well. It's just that I'm more used to it and it comes with most of the libraries that we use. So we actually ended up embracing it and we work with ErlangMK for everything. Just because, because we also have reverb projects, but we like around MK. And so XPM was kind of implicitly bound to reverb. And so we're trying to connect along MK with XPM. And I think we're pretty close to make it. And so we created XR, which is an independent tool in S-Script that lets you publish your Erlang projects regardless of the tool that you use to compile them to XPM. And we created an LMK extension. So you can do that straight from in your project. You do make X uh, publish or X out, and you publish those to, to XPM. There are a couple of things still there to iron out because, as I said, XPM was softly bound to Rebar. So we are... This is a whole uncharted territory, but Eric and Tristan, they are really open. They are always willing to help. So eventually it will become just another thing, MK bound to XPM. And hopefully XPM will become the place to go if you want to find if there is a library for the things that you need to do in Erlang or Elixir. And I think that will be great. Yeah, and one of the benefits that those repositories have for me is that, say, you start out as your official open source and I stumble upon it on GitHub and I want to start using it, but then if, then it becomes officially adopted by Anaka, and then that's where all the progress happens is my project is still bound to your repo, which is ne- not necessarily up to date with the Anaka stuff and all the latest and greatest changes and all the version tags. And so I start losing that information instead of having this one repository, which represents the source of that package, no matter where it lives on the source code. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing that I've been impressed with, and you've just reiterated this throughout the whole call, just from watching Anaka, is the fact that, as you mentioned, there are so many disparate tools, and each one has its own way of doing things. You had Rebar. You've now got Rebar 3 for the migration. You've got Erlang Make. You've got regular Make files. And it just depends on when people come in and what problems that they've had. And then even, there was even the other one that uh, that Tristan was working on before Rebar 3. Yeah, CNAN or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. and Relics and all these other things to do these things. And what's been impressive just watching your posts through the past couple of years is as you've mentioned with everything else, that you're 
that the goal that you're working towards with you and Anaka has been to reconcile these so that they can all be used and play nicely together instead of, well, I've got this dependency and it uses Erlang Make, but this thing uses Rebar and now this thing uses something else and now I've got to do this weird build process and maintain my builds and packages in a weird manner just so they can all play together nicely. And it seems that there's a lot of this reconciling the ecosystem going on as well. Yeah, yeah, it's for me, it's kind of a, a requirement. You can use whatever build tool you have, but you, if you open source your project, it has to be compatible with what, what your users are going to use. Because as a CTO, if somebody finds a library for doing whatever, connecting to whatever service, but in order to use it in our application, we have to modify it a lot and we have to adapt and whatever, I won't be compelled to use it. And as an open source developer, I want people to be compelled to use my things. And so to me, it's really important to be open. So you like Erlang MK? Excellent. I provide you with a make file that you need or whatever. You like Rebar? No problem. I give you my Rebar config. There, you have it. You want to compile yourself manually? Perfect. I give you an e-make file. You can use it. But that, again, uh, is a lot. When you have multiple open source projects, that's a huge responsibility. You have to maintain all those build methods in place in all your open source projects. If those tools talk nicely to each other and Erlang MK projects can use rebar dependencies or XPM dependencies on the other way around as well, it's much better. You just provide one and done with it. Everything works together as fine. In my experience, at least Rebar, Rebar built uh, open source libraries, compile perfectly. If your main compiling tool is Erlangmk, and it's not even a problem there. And both Rebar and Erlangmk, they use Redex, so fine. And support for XPM is growing. It's not, it's not 100%, but it's growing. It's, uh, I think it's for Rebar is more than enough. And for Erlang MK, it's just a tiny bit off. We, we need a couple of fixes, but it will be implemented soon. So it's all coming together. And then you get the freedom to choose whatever you like using the most. If you like writing make, dialyze, or make whatever, better than writing Rebar 3, dialyze, or whatever, it's up to you because any tool you use, it will talk nicely to the others and that's good enough. So yeah, I'm constantly encouraging people to make things compatible. So let's let's say for instance when, when we decided to publish to XPM in our first two projects, they were built with Erlang MK and the, the only tool we had to publish to XPM was Rebar 3. So the developer that was in charge of publishing those projects basically turn those projects into Rebar 3 ones, like with the Rebar config and whatnot, and then publish them. And I stopped him, I stopped him right away and I said, no, no, that's not the way. You have to create something so that you can publish Erlang MK projects to, to XPM so that you don't have to be forced to use one tool just because you want your project published somewhere. And that's how XR came up. 
And that's the way I will keep pushing stuff in the future, for sure. So we've covered quite a bit. What haven't we managed to cover in our conversation so far that you think we need to bring up? Is there anything offhand that you think we need to, that we haven't mentioned that you want to let people know about? I don't think something that we need to let the people know about, but I have this space now. And so I will repeat the advice I always give everywhere, especially when I train people, use Dialyzer. Dialyzer is one of the best tools around to check your code. And I get, I get a lot of people saying that Dialyzer is uh, complicated, it takes a lot of time, or the errors are incomprehensible. But I always reply, I've won more than one beer over the last year just by sitting down with people and reading Dialyzer warnings, because my bet is this one. If you don't understand your Dialyzer warnings, but I check it out with you, and I found that there was actually a bug, I win a beer, right? If those dialyzer warnings can be removed without finding any bugs in your code, then you want a beer. And I still have to collect beers in, if I remember correctly, in Budapest, in Krakow, and a couple of them in San Francisco. Because every single time, dialyzer warnings are there for a reason, and I never find a project where the warnings, even if unclear, didn't reflect an actual bug in your code. So I encourage people to keep using the tool. And if you feel like it, OTP is open source. You can send a pull request modifying the error reports to make it clearer. I tried myself and I'm not qualified. I'm not at that level. Costis is a, is a real genius. And so I stop there. And even if sometimes I complain about not understanding what the eraser says, I always resort to just checking out the code, trial and error, and I found the bug, and it's worth it. So, yeah, that's always my advice. Use the tools, use the Elizer, which is a really nice tool to get your code rid of bugs. And where would you want to point someone to get up to speed on Dialyzer to get started if they aren't even really using it to begin with and just writing Erlang code without specifying type specs? Do you have any good resources that when you encourage people to use Dialyzer, you point them to to get them to start to be up to speed? Oh, about yeah. It? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a practice here at Inaka called meta testing. I stole that name from Hernan Wilkinson. He was my OOP teacher at university. And basically, it's the art of testing your code quality with a test instead of, instead of just testing the actual uh, functionality of the code. You test that your code is good, not that it performs well. And so if you check out Erlang Katana, which is a library created by unbalanced parentheses Fede Carone, I added their common test suite called Katana Meta Suite that basically runs Dialyzer, Xref, and Elvis on your code while you're running your tests. And that's the very first test suite I always add to my projects. So if you start dialyzing your code from day zero, the warnings are pretty clear. That's the best advice I can give you. If you have a huge project and then you try to run dialyzer on it, it will be extremely complicated. But if you are changing a couple of things, running dialyzer, changing a couple of things, running dialyzer, then you will see that the warnings can only be in those lines that you have changed. 
and they are usually pretty clear because you know what you've changed and how you could have generated those warnings. And so to start with Dialyzer, for somebody who wants to start with Dialyzer, I would just recommend to start with Dialyzer, right? Add the Katana Meta Suite to your tests and just run it all the time. And you will learn step-by-step with that. That sounds like great information and stuff that I could probably even take advantage of because I'm potentially slack with Dialyzer and being able to have something that is part of my build process and compile process when I go work in Erling that essentially forces me to be more disciplined about it because I can get away with not doing it if my feet aren't kind of held to the fire or <laughs> yeah. when I stop thinking about things, it's like, oh, let me just try this real quick and then fall out of practice, up, like fall out of that just because it sounds like a good tool. One thing that now is true, it wasn't true a couple of years ago, but now it is, is that running dialyzer, it's extremely fast. The problem is generating the PLT the first time, the very first time. But okay, you generate the PLT after you clone the repository, and that's all you have to do. Then running dialyzer is as fast as any other test. So there is no more complaining about that. And it's actually faster if you run it all the time, because again, if you let your code stay unchecked for a while, you will have lots of warning to deal with when you run dialyzer then. And just the way that it helps keep you making sure you're running it too is useful instead of run test, run test, run test, play with something, pull off the website, and then it's like, okay, a couple hours later, now it's dialyzer, if I remember. <laughs> yeah. So I basically do test-driven development. As That's the way I code. It's not because of, it's not at Inaga, it's not the philosophy, it's, it's the only way I, I know how to code. So I write tests, I make them pass. And having Dialyzer as part of those tests is an automatic way to prevent me from writing bad quality code, just like that. So that sounds fantastic, and I'll definitely have to check that out. And I just stumbled across the Katana stuff, and I think it was actually from one of your tweets or the Anaka blog, and it's something on my list to check out related to Erlang as well and be able to take advantage of. Is there anything else you mentioned doing Dialyzer on your stuff? So is there anything you want to plug? Are you coming up to any conferences? Are you going to be speaking anywhere? Is there any stuff on the radar that you want people to keep a catch on? Anything else you want to publicize? Erlan Factory is coming to San Francisco on March for my birthday. So I will be celebrating my birthday over there with everybody. If Monica Coles remember her promise, I will be a host there for a track. I'm sure I will. And also Hernan Rivas Acosta, which is another one of our Inaka developers, will be giving a talk there. I don't think anybody who is listening to this doesn't know what Erlang Factory in San Francisco is. But in any case, it's the biggest Erlang event in the US. And it happens once per year. So if you're going to go to some Erlang event, that's the one you have to go. and. Yeah, I will meet you there. So you mentioned Dialyzer and running Dialyzer always on your projects. Do you have any other call to actions for our listeners after they've listened to this podcast that you want to see them do? I don't know. I always encourage people to do test-driven development, but that's a personal philosophy that I'm not willing to blast around. It's, it's something that I know it's good. And for me, it's the way to go. But I think it's a personal choice. So it doesn't matter. But yeah. 
common test and test driven development in Erlang is a, it's a good thing to do. Dialyzer, Xref, Xref is a, it's a great bug detector. It's instant bug detector. Everything that Xref reports is a bug all the time. Of course, run the use the compiler with all the warnings on. In short, improving the quality of your code is worth it. It's something that's really worth it, especially in open source projects where you have other people checking around your code. And if you want them to collaborate with you and send you pull requests and all the stuff, your code must be clean, must be nice so that people understand it. And it's not hard for them to provide optimizations, changes, or bug fixes for you. You get a lot more contributions if your code is nice and easy to, to handle than if you have a impressively good project that nobody understands. That sounds like a great ask for everybody to go off and do and keep in mind as they go on and work on their project, be it Erlang or any other thing that they're working on. Yeah, any other thing. So where can people find you and follow you and everything that's going on with you and Anaka online? Well, that's the best thing of being an Argentinian. So if you ever find El Brujo Alcón anywhere, that's me. There are no other El Brujo Alcóns in the world. In Twitter, in About Me, GitHub, Stack Overflow, YouTube, whatever. Everywhere. Facebook, Code Mentor, etc., etc., etc. Wherever you find uh, El Brujo Alcón, that's myself. Well, that sounds great. And I'll get links to that in the show notes for you and all your sites and the Anaka site and the Anaka repo and make sure that people can find out. Yeah, yeah. And check, it out, check out the new Erlang Solutions website that we've built. It's really nice, and it's brand new, like two months old. And you can find me there as well. That sounds great. And I'll get all those added to the show notes so people can find out more. Okay. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brutal, for giving your time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking with you and very enlightening about a lot of other stuff I didn't know that Inaku was involved with and some of those tools that you've been putting out. And thanks for helping that. And I'm sure that'll be useful to a bunch of other listeners as well. Okay. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me as well. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.